Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. That is so good. Well done, you guys. Well done, you guys. One of the persons that was key in really uh, turning our high school ministry around after a period of struggle uh, was Ryan Smith. And uh, I don't know if we've announced publicly. Is it okay? (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, I sorry. Never mind. No, uh, I'm sure Stuart and Danny will be pleased to hear that uh, Ryan and Carrie have been admitted to Princeton and will be leaving and going to Princeton next fall and uh, pursuing pastoral ministry in the Presbyterian Church. Isn't that great? Princeton better hold on for dear life. That's all I can say. It will never be the same. So, how many of you took me seriously and prayed this last week for the loss of this community or took the opportunity to reach out to someone and share your faith in Jesus Christ? Raise your hand if you did either of those things. Good for you. Good for you. I talked to a woman who, she had a friend who was dying. And she had been putting off asking her, where are you going to spend eternity? And that the opportunity came up this week and she spoke to her and she had such a great experience sharing her love for Jesus Christ that she tried to do it again to another person, had another talk. So it's kind of addictive, this sharing of the love of Christ. And I pray that we will more and more become a church that has a passion for the least and the lost, that we want to reach out to this community and not only do good things, not only build houses, not only take care of the kids and, and all the other stuff that we are part of, but, but care about their eternal souls. And share the the good news that in Jesus Christ they might have eternal life with the Father. We return this morning to a text that I preached on for my Christmas Eve sermon. How many of you were here for Christmas Eve? A lot of you. Well, then never mind. We'll just pronounce the benediction and go home. (laughs) It is the most unlikely Christmas Eve text that I have ever preached and that you're likely to ever hear preached. In fact, when I told my pastor friends that I was going to be using this text to preach on for Christmas Eve, they told me that I was crazy. But it is a good Christmas Eve text. It is a nativity text. It, uh, it's a little different nativity text, but it is a, a nativity text. It doesn't include the shepherds and the angels out of Luke's gospel. It does not include the magi or Joseph's dreams out of Matthew's gospel. But this is a, a nativity story nonetheless. It is, as Eugene Peterson puts it, stripped of all its sentimentality and coziness. And so it is. For in this horrific cartoon that we're going to look at this morning, we catch a glimpse of the Christmas story for what it truly was. 
the invasion of God into this world and a death battle, a life and death battle between the forces of good and evil. It is a long text again this day, and although you can read along with it and you find your bulletin, uh, the text in your bulletin, again, I would urge you to close your eyes. If you do well listening to the reading of the Word, close your eyes and listen, for this is a story for the imagination, not for the eyes. So see it in your mind's eye, if you will. Close your eyes and listen now to God's Holy Word. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments 
and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want to take a look at the story, first of all, on face value. We'll come back in a moment and try to interpret it, but let's take it as it comes to us in the text. After the interlude of the two witnesses, which we looked at last week, the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, finally we have the last trumpet blown. And we are probably expecting another plague. That's what we've been getting with all of the rest of the trumpets. But we are surprised because instead there is a great heavenly announcement, a loud voice in heaven. Thunderous voices, in fact, in heaven begin to speak out words that have been immortalized in Handel's Messiah. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you know the rest of the song. Hallelujah. After this glorious declaration, the 24 elders fall on their faces. They can't help but join in. They too begin singing to God. They sing praises to the one who was and to, uh, who is and who was. By the way, did you notice that something's missing there? And is to come. Wait a second. What happened? Isn't he to come anymore? Last time we were reading about the one who is and was, it was also and is to come in chapter 1. Well, why isn't he to come? He, he's here. That's the story. We don't need to say he is to come because in this story, he comes. He is here. And so they're not just looking ahead to something. He who was, who he is, who is was, and who has come. And they sing to him. Now, you might think that this is good news. For years we've been speaking the Lord's Prayer, haven't we? And there are words in the Lord's Prayer that you may not be aware of that you are speaking that are precisely aimed at this moment. You know what I'm talking about? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. For 2,000 years, the followers of Jesus have been praying this prayer. And in this announcement, in this blowing of this trumpet, suddenly it's real. Suddenly the angels declare it is so. Thy kingdom has come. The kingdom of the world now becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Well, we would think this is a pretty good news. We, apparently the heavens think so because there's fireworks in heaven. Thunder and lightning, peals of thunder, an earthquake. Uh, the temple is torn apart. And we look around to see, see how is this going to take place? Is it going to be an invasion? Perhaps millions of angels now are going to leave the heavenlies and they are going to come to earth and they're going to set up the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ on this earth. Is that how it's going to come? And, and so we were looking around. Just in chapter 5 when they said, well, look, the Lion of Judah, we're looking for a lion. And what do we see instead? And so here we look perhaps for millions of angels who will conquer the world and set up the kingdom of Christ. And what do we see instead? pregnant woman. Not exactly what we were expecting. Not exactly how we thought we would see the invasion of God coming. For the scene changes, the lights change, there's a magnificent light show in heaven, and suddenly we have before us a new scene. And it is a woman, and it is a glorious image of a woman. She is arrayed in the sun. That is her garment. She wears the sun. Her feet are upon the moon. Speaking of dominion, 
Her hair is arrayed, her head is arrayed with 12 stars. She is glorious in her aspect and she is arrayed with the universe. And there's something else about her too. She's pregnant. And she's not just pregnant. She is 10 centimeters and ready to push pregnant. In fact, the songs of the elders that have been singing in the, in the chapter before are now drowned out by the cries of this woman in labor as she, as she seeks to bring forth this new life into the world. And it is a strange and wonderful combination of images that we have this powerful, glorious woman in the throes of birth pangs. And then John says, and there was another sign. Now, by the way, this is one of those clues that suggests that John wrote both the gospel and the apocalypse because he uses the word sign throughout all of the gospel. And here we have two signs. The first sign is the woman. Here's the second sign. What is it? A dragon. A dragon. It's a, it's a beast of mythology, and it is an ugly dragon. Dragons aren't pretty anyhow, but this is ugly dragon. He is red. What does red symbolize? We heard this before. What does red symbolize? The four horsemen. What is the red horse? Warfare, murder, violence. So he has red to symbolize his murderous nature. He has seven heads. Remember, seven means complete. He has authority. He has crowns on those heads. This, this, this dragon has authority. He has ten horns. Remember what horns symbolize? Strength, power. Very good. You guys are quick. He... Seven heads, seven crowns, ten horns to signify strength. So he has authority and he has power. And as, again, Peterson describes him, he is a great red slash across the sky. What a juxtaposition of images. This glorious pregnant woman giving birth and this ugly, horrible dragon. With a flick of his gigantic tail, a third of the stars disappear from the heavens and fall to the earth. He is awesome. He is gigantic. He is horribly powerful. And where does he station himself? At the foot of the birthing bed. Are you getting this image in your head? As I recall being in Cindy's birthing room, I cannot imagine a more vulnerable situation than that of a mother at the threshold of birth. Can you? And what any woman would want, I suspect, as that baby... The baby's head appears would be people who she trusts and loves attending her through her agony and escorting that little one into the world, right? So mothers, can you imagine instead of having your husband and your doctor there escorting that child in, if instead it was a, a frothing, barking Rottweiler at the foot of your bed? Would you find that comforting? Would you find it helpful and focusing? And yet here this woman... Here this woman has a dragon at the foot of her birthing bed, waiting to snatch the baby as soon as it appears and to destroy it. Interestingly, the dragon doesn't attack the woman. He waits to destroy the child. And he is perched in this vicious anticipation. But he's not quick enough. For the baby is born, and we are told very quickly that he's a baby who was born to rule with an iron scepter, rule the whole world. And we are told that the baby is snatched, perhaps by angelic forces, snatched from the birthing room into the throne room of heaven in a split second. And the exhausted woman, she flees into the desert. We should understand desert as a place of refuge. We think of it sometimes as a, as a, 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 a horrible, desolate place. But in this case, and in many places, the desert is a place of refuge, a place of safety. And she goes. How long does she go? 
1,260. How many years is that? Three and a half. Are you getting that? Another way of describing it, by the way, is a time and times and a half a time. One, two, and a half. Three and a half. Again and again. It is for a temporary period of time that this persecution is allowed. And she is taken. She flees to the desert. The dragon is furious. And so he chases the baby into heaven. Big mistake. You've never seen bodyguards like this baby has. For Michael, who is the... He is the buff angel. He's the one that every time you read of some fighting going on, Michael, Michael's the dude. Now, he's kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger of, of heaven. And Michael and all of the angels take on the dragon and all of his angels, and if I may say so, kick their hind ends all across heaven's gates. It's quite an image. In fact, the text says literally that he hurls them out of heaven. He uses that word six times. You know what the word is literally? Bounced. Isn't that great? Heaven's bouncers kick the dragon out of the throne room. And he ends up on earth. He's bounced out. The dragon is thrown onto the earth. He has failed in his pursuit of the child. He's failed in his battle with the angels of heaven. And so he decides now to take his fury out on the woman. And so we read that the woman is given two wings of a great eagle and she flies into, into the desert. I believe this is a repeat of the earlier idea and takes it farther. We are told that she goes there time plus times plus time and a half, three and a half years, three and a half something. And the dragon cannot catch the woman either. And so he resorts to an evil, filthy trick. You see what he does? He spits at her. He spits at her. Only this is like no... Loogie, you've ever seen. I mean, he opens his mouth and he lets loose with a huge gusher of spit and it is like a flooding river. He is going to drown her. But even the earth steps in to protect the woman for we read that the earth itself opens up and swallows the dragon's spit. And the dragon who is enraged then turns his attention to the rest of the woman's offspring. And the last that we see of the dragon in today's text, he is standing on the shore of the ocean. And I believe that he is standing there panting, exhausted, frustrated, preparing for his next dirty trick, which we will see next week. So turn in, tune in, same, same time, same station. Now what a story. Have you ever heard a Christmas story like that if you didn't come to Christmas Eve? So what does it mean? And what is the significance for us 21st century disciples of Jesus. First of all, the child is clearly the Messiah. I don't understand how any commentators can see otherwise, uh, and a few do, but the child is clearly the Messiah. This is the birth of the invasion, the, the scene of the invasion of God into the world, and it comes not through normal channels, but through the birth channel. God invades the world through the birth canal. John, in his first volume, wrote, and the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. This is that moment. Although, frankly, in this rendition of the story, we don't see a lot of dwelling taking place, do we? He is born, and he is snatched up into heaven. Why is that? Well, because John's got another story to tell. He already wrote a book about Jesus and his life and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. He already dealt with that. Now, he wants to do it shorthand because he's looking at it from an entirely different perspective. He's looking at it from heavenly perspective, from the eternal kingdom perspective. 
And what he wants to point out is that the child who came, who invaded the earth, has now been vindicated. He reigns in heaven as the victorious one, which was the point. Who is the woman? Trick question. First response is to say Mary, perhaps, or Eve. And in a way, perhaps that is true, but the woman clearly represents more than Mary. For one thing, none of the kinds of things that we see described in the story ever took place, if any of this is meant to be at all historical, except perhaps for Herod and his attempt to kill the child as soon as the baby was born. We don't have any indication that Mary was fleeing after those first early days. There is obviously something more here than meets the eye. And I believe that the woman is representative of Israel, the chosen people of God, the ones who, through whom the Messiah was, was presented to the world, the ones that were promised through Abraham to be a blessing to all people. I think it's more than Israel, though, too, because you must understand there is not a break between Israel and the church. The true Israel and the church are one. It is continuous. We have been grafted into that olive tree, Paul says. And so it is not only the Israel of old that anticipated the coming of the Messiah, but it continues to be the church of the, of the present, the new Israel of this moment. And I'll explain to you why I think that is so. But this woman is the hum, humanity prepared and called to welcome the invasion of God and to allow it to occur. Ah, who is the dragon? This is the easiest one. If you can't get this one, man, you are not paying attention. Who is it? It is Satan. Now, in these enlightened times, surely we don't believe in an actual Satan, a real devil. Surely he is as mythological as the dragon that we find portrayed in this text, right? He is a metaphor for evil, but a real, personal, spiritual evil force. Come on, we are enlightened folks. Well, before we too quickly dismiss this notion, we had better pay attention to what the scripture says about this. For almost from the very beginning of scripture, we have images of the evil one. And in fact, the earliest images that we find are remarkably similar to what we find in this story, aren't they? Genesis 3, who is it that beguiles Eve to disobey God and bring sin into the world? The serpent. The serpent he is called. The serpent. And in fact, when we are reading of the, of the curse that comes upon the serpent, here is the promise in, in 3.15. God speaking to the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head. words, the snake may get his fangs into, into the offspring of the woman, but in the end, his fangs will be crushed into the ground with the rest of his head. And so in that prophecy, in Genesis 3, thousands of years ago, is foretold the very image that we see here. This great battle between the serpent, the dragon, the evil one, and the offspring of the woman. So the Old Testament speaks of a Satan, a devil. Jesus certainly believed in a real devil. When Peter was tempting Jesus to go bypass the way of the cross, he said, oh, you don't need to go through all of that. What was Jesus, what was Jesus rebuked to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. 
And when he was talking to the Pharisees in probably the most scathing language that we will ever read of Jesus speaking towards the Pharisees, in John chapter 8 he says this, You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out his desire? He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him, and you are just like him. Did the Apostle Paul believe in a devil? You bet he did. He wrote to the Ephesians, do not give the devil a foothold. He wrote to his young friend Timothy, escape the trap of the devil. James, the brother of Jesus, writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And Peter, the chief, peace, the chief apostle of Jesus, wrote, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. From the beginning to the end, the Bible teaches that there is an actual evil spiritual force. And he is known by many names. In fact, this passage presents him by many names, doesn't it? He is called the devil, diabolos. From that we get the word diabolical. Diabolos means the accuser, the slanderer. He is called Satan, which is the word for adversary, the one who stands in your way. He is called a liar. He is the one who leads the world astray. And of course, by his color, he, we are reminded once again that he is a killer. He is a stealer of health and life. Now, if you choose to believe, if you choose to disbelieve in an actual Satan, you do so against the counsel of the Old Testament, against the testimony of Jesus, and against the writings of the apostles. And you do so against the plain evidence of your own senses. How shall we account for the horrible, horrible evil that runs rampant in this world. How else but by the fact that we have an enemy? He is an accuser. He spends his time telling us that we are unworthy of God's love. That we ought to continue to live in guilt because we are nothing but dirt. Have you ever heard that voice whispering to you? You are a scum. You are worthless. It is the voice of Satan. It is the enemy. He is the accuser. He is a liar. He spends his time telling us that the things that will destroy us aren't really so bad after all. So go ahead, take one more drink, pop one more pill, flirt just a little bit more, go a little farther into debt, it won't hurt. He is the adversary, he is the one who stands against you. He is the one who stands in our way, who seeks to block our path to eternal life. My friends, we have an enemy. He is real. The Bible calls him Satan, the devil. And he is doing all that he can to mess up this world and to mess up your life. Why? Because he's ticked. That's what Daryl Johnson puts it at, and I can't come up with any better. He is ticked. He is furious at the child. He is furious at the woman. He is furious at God. And he is furious at the church. I told you we'd come back to this. Did you see that reference at the very end in verse 17? Take a look at it. After he has failed in his attempt to destroy the child, the heavens, the woman, to whom does he turn his attention? What does it say? It's the rest of the offspring of the woman. Who are the rest of the offspring of Israel? Us. We are the offspring. We are the offspring of the woman. We are the offspring of Israel. We are the children of Israel. And Satan, having failed in all of his other attempts, is mad at us. We are the last vestige. And so against us he turns his wrath. Our enemy, the devil, is ticked. He is as mad as mad can be. And why is he mad? Because he is a loser. 
He is a loser. He has lost at every turn. And he knows it. He has been overcome. And how is it that he has been overcome? What is the, what is the key? How do we know that the devil has lost? Well, he got kicked out. By what means was he defeated in the, the song of praise in the last part? How was he defeated? By two things. The blood of the lamb and the testimony of the witnesses. The, the blood of the lamb and then we tell the story of the blood of the lamb and what it has done to us and it beats him. You, the, the devil cannot stand against the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the passionate testimony of those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have an enemy. He is mad because he's a loser. He is a loser. He is defeated. There are two important things I want you to take home today. First, I want you to take the devil seriously. He is a liar. He is an accuser. He is a slanderer. He is an adversary. He is a stealer of health and life. He steals marriages. He steals relationships. He steals wealth. All that we see that is bad in this world is an outgrowth of the enemy as he pours out his contempt upon the world and upon God, the creator of the world. The Apostle Paul warned us that we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. We don't, that's not our fight. You know, we think we get mad at each other. That's not our fight, Paul says. You're, flesh, you're, you're, you're fighting against spiritual battle, a spiritual battle here. You're dealing with the forces of evil. Don't ever forget it, he says. The fact of it is, my friends, the devil still spits on us. He still pours out a flood from his rancid mouth trying to engulf us, trying to drown us. Every time you feel yourself being engulfed by the temptation to lie, every time you feel yourself being engulfed by the temptation to sleep with your boyfriend, every time you feel, find yourself being engulfed by the temptation to hate yourself, to be disgusted with the way you look, to view yourself as wretched and worthless, you need to remember that is the devil spitting on you. And he cannot stand against the shed blood of Christ. Claim it, pray it, defeat him. You need to recognize it for what it is. It is a spiritual battle. And when that comes, that oppression, that adversary comes upon you, you ought to pause and say, Jesus, you have died and shed your blood to protect me from this. And so I claim it, I cover myself with it, and I rebuke and reject the devil in all of his efforts in my life. Here's the other point. As much as I want you to take the devil seriously... I don't want you to take him too seriously. There are entire Christian kingdoms that have been built around the power of the devil. And I reject that. The only thing that is worse than not believing that the devil is powerful is believing that the devil is too powerful. Because, and here is the really important thing to take from this sermon, the devil is a loser. He is a defeated enemy. He could not destroy the child. He could not destroy the angelic hosts. He could not destroy the woman. And try as he might, he cannot destroy the church either. Because he has already lost the war. He is the serpent. And Jesus has chopped his head off. You know what happens to a rattlesnake head once it's chopped off. What? It can still bite. It can still move around for a while. And what we are seeing in this world, in the evil of this world, are the last-ditch efforts of the snake whose head has been cut off, but he's still trying to sink his fangs into someone's foot. But as the text says clearly, he is mad because he knows his days are short. 
My brothers and sisters in Christ, you are the redeemed, the protected, the blood-covered children of the eternal God in Jesus Christ. You are spiritual brothers and sisters of the victorious God-child. In Christ, you can have victory over this enemy, and it has already been won. Isn't it time that we started living as if it were so? And so I challenge you and I challenge me to go out with a renewed sense of boldness in the authority authority that is ours through the shed blood of Christ over the work of the evil one. Let us pray. It was a costly price that was paid, O Christ, to defeat this enemy of ours. It was the price of your shed blood. You paid far too great a price. But we're so glad that you did. We offer our lives to you anew and we pray that you would fill us with a sense of the authority and boldness and confidence that comes as the redeemed and protected children of the King. Lord, we're going to give you some of our wealth now. It is an expression of our love for you. I pray, God, that if it is not so, that the hand will stay out of the wallet. For you love a cheerful giver. But for those who do love and feel called to support your work, I pray that you would bless both gift and giver as we offer this up to you as token of our whole lives offered to you. For we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.